ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. One day in the year 79 AD, a Roman resort town called Pompeii was completely smothered by ash and pumice and deadly gas that erupted from the nearby volcano Vesuvius. Pompeii lay preserved underneath all those layers of volcanic stuff until it was rediscovered around 200 years ago. As archaeologists excavated the ruins, they realised they had the closest thing they'd ever get to an artefact of day-to-day Roman life in the heyday of the empire. The archaeologists were sometimes extremely embarrassed by some of the things they discovered, by the openly sexual Romans, and at times they were overcome by the poignancy of their discoveries. The remains of a child in the arms of her mother, the bones of a man who died when a wall toppled onto him. Dr Estelle Laser is an archaeologist from the University of Sydney and she spends much of her time amongst the bones of the dead of Pompeii because the bones tell you so much about those ancient people, how they lived, what they ate, what ailed them, and how they died. I spoke to Estelle in 2009, just after she'd returned from one of her many visits to Pompeii. Dr Estelle Laser, good morning. Good morning, Richard. You've only just got back from Pompeii. It's true, (laughs) just on the weekend. And what were you doing over there this time? We're hoping to get some ideas about sustainable housing and see if we can apply them to modern buildings. We're looking at health and comfort in ancient Roman houses. So um, what the ventilation was like, uh, it's been suggested that there was very poor ventilation and high particle pollution and that people were suffering from lung diseases. And we want to see if that's really true. And also how they warmed their houses in the winter and cooled them in the summer. How did they? Did they have five conventional fireplaces as we know them? We, we don't know a lot about it. They certainly had braziers, but they don't throw out a lot of heat. And the houses don't look very well insulated. So we're really fascinated to know what the thermal mass was and whether they had winter gardens or heat sinks or what they did, we have no idea yet. Pompeii was full of holiday houses, wasn't it, in 79 AD? Many wealthy Romans had their... Was it like the Byron Bay or something of, of, of Rome in those days? Um, well, it was a river port and the Bay of Naples was described as having just a string of villas all along it. And certainly we know that there were very many famous Romans and important people who did come there for the summer to escape Rome's heat. These days it's like a suburb of Naples, isn't it, Pompeii? It is a suburb of Naples, yes. <laughs> so, so you just sort of go up there and... And it's, it's, it takes up several city blocks. You can walk around it as Romans did back then. Ah, yes, that's what's wonderful about Pompeii. It's a magnificent site. It's actually quite vast. You can only see all of it from either the top of Mount Vesuvius or from the air. It's There's no vantage point where you can look down and see the whole town. So you get to walk in an above-ground ancient site. I mean, it's the most magnificent place. Most other ancient sites, you can see the foundations. You don't see domestic structures. And I think what makes it so compelling for the average visitor, or for anyone actually, is that um, 
we we have a whole town. We have not just the big structures, the theatres, the temple surviving, but the buildings that people lived in, the the way they carried out their daily life. It's a place you could imagine living in. It's not abstract like an ancient tomb. It's something that's very, very accessible and easy to understand. And because it was destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, we're looking at really the archaeology of a mass disaster and what sits in that destruction layer, which are all the fine details of daily life. So everything from big structures, sculptures, paintings, to the tiniest, most humble daily items, food people ate, the tweezers they used, the gaming devices they used, um, little dice, stuff like that. So it's very, very easy to relate to. It's amazingly cool too, isn't it? I, I love hearing stories like that. They're not like the ancient Egyptians then are to us who are mysterious and slightly otherworldly. Are they Are they recognisably, I don't want to say modern, but are they recognisable, recognisably human to us? Oh, absolutely. It's a place you could easily imagine living in. It's very, very easy to visit. And without explanation, most people can work out what they're looking at, which is pretty wonderful. Antarctica and Pompeii are your twin passions. Where were they born, Estelle? Oh, when I was very young, I came across Pompeii when I was about eight, I suppose, as a school child. And I just really wanted to go there. It was a dream. And pretty much at the same time, we had a student teacher at my school who talked about one of her relatives who'd been an Antarctic explorer. So both passions came very early in life. Yeah, it's such different places. Like one is a, 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 a kind of you know, a civilization and, and the other isn't. What's the, well, I'll come to Antarctica later, but what was the appeal there with Antarctica? As if I didn't know already. Here. Oh, yes, it's a wild and beautiful place. It's like nowhere else on earth. And the archaeology is very, very different. <laughs> what sort of archaeology did you want to study then? Um, well, I always knew I was interested in archaeology. I was a child with no fear of dirt, so... Mud and <laughs> digging holes was always good to me. Um, but I was very interested in underwater archaeology, but alas, failed the medical on account of being asthmatic. So. What, do, you, do you mean like shipwrecks, you mean? Love to have studied shipwrecks. <laughs> Did that, was that a blow to you? A little bit, but not for very long. <laughs> What's interesting about the work you do is you, you focus on skeletons uh, at, at Pompeii specifically. And it, and it doesn't seem like there was that much interest in the in the skeletons of Pompeii until you came along. Why not? Um, well, there was so much else to distract people. So the the buildings, the wall paintings, the sculptures. Uh, it was um, if you look at the history of the excavations of Pompeii and the study of archaeology, they're sort of paralleled classical archaeology pretty much developed in line with the um, excavations of Pompeii. So the main interest of early classical archaeologists was the history of art. And the human skeletons, I mean, what was amazing was they weren't thrown out. That was quite traditional in the 18th century when this material was first discovered. But they weren't seen to have any scientific importance, but certainly they were found to have a value in that they could be used as like theatre props to recreate scenes of the macabre deaths of the victims. So they were they were preserved and used for to create vignettes for visiting dignitaries to the site. Tell me about that. Well, this is this involved a fair bit of skeleton shifting, then, did it, Estelle? Ah, uh, yes, and this tradition has continued. <laughs> So it makes the work just a little bit more challenging. <laughs> yeah. uh, so when were you doing your degree, when, when that was going on, where was the best place to learn about bones? 
Well, this is hundreds of years ago in my youth. Uh, we <laughs> there wasn't there wasn't a course in forensic archaeology when I was doing my studies. So I um I went down to the morgue in Sydney and uh, had a chat with the person who studied. Um, skeletal remains. He was a forensic pathologist, but any bodies that came in from the bush, they were his. And he offered to give me a kind of apprenticeship. So I used to come in, usually on Sundays, that's when bodies seemed to come. <laughs> and um, uh, I'd go to autopsies and I learnt pretty much um, as an apprentice. Were you squeamish? Uh, not at all. No, I, um, I found I was fairly detached. <laughs> yeah, my first autopsy, um, I... Uh, they hadn't they hadn't actually allowed women into the morgue until about the year before I came, so um, I was a bit of a rarity there. And uh, the head of the morgue at the time took me into his office and said, "Have you seen a dead body before? Do you think you'll be all right? Do you think you'll faint?" And I said, "I have no idea." And he said, "Just do it backwards if you do." And or then, fall backwards. <laughs> that's correct, <laughs> for good reasons. And uh, I was in there and. Um, as you can see, I'm very, very short. And I was standing on tippy toes looking in. And uh, he came up behind me and said, taking to it like a duck to water and slapped me on the back, which thus threw me into the corpse. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> After that, they gave me a box. Oh, were you traumatised by that? Uh, or were you OK? Not desperately traumatised, <laughs> but I was pleased to have the box on subsequent occasions. <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, your first big dig was in Bahrain. Tell me a bit about that dig. Uh, it, well, we were all very young students. Um, it was a rescue excavation. They were building a causeway between Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. And Bahrain has the most astonishing collection of um, burial mounds. They're like 100,000 out in the desert. And the causeway oh, yeah, was... Going back to where? To, to what, what, from what um, It's the Bronze Age. So um, I oh. guess the oldest would have been about 5,000 years old. Was, it, was the area fertile back, much more fertile than it is today? Um, I can only presume so. <laughs> yeah. so. So tell me about that dig then and, and the things you found. Um, the dig was great. Um, we were digging up um, these burial mounds. So there were graves that could have more than one... Um, burial in them. It was a very interesting place. Bahrain had fresh water and it was a place that um, people visited on the trade routes from the Indus Valley to the Tigris and Euphrates and vice versa. And we worked with um, Pakistani workmen and um, didn't practice normal occupational health and safety. We were digging sand. So you you dig section, um, like you quarter the site <laughs> and you leave a little... Um, gap it's called a box that you can walk on but they were never shored so one of our graves was opened by our poor Pakistani workmen falling into it um we did find uh gold in one grave and uh and beautiful pottery and of course interest the skeletons were very very badly preserved it was a bit like um if you can imagine those sort of horror movies where you've got the shape of the skeleton you can see it but if you breathe on them they just disappeared so, what is that like for you? The, the emotion of those moments. There you are, you want to be an archaeologist and you're opening Bronze Age burial mounds that fall apart with a whisper. Wow. Yeah, it was really strange. We tried to consolidate the bones as best we could, but um, yeah, we lost, I mean, that's the nature of archaeology. It is kind of a destructive 
activity. Who was your boss? Our, our boss was a princess, so she was pretty impressive. She used to roll up in this huge American car and she was completely covered. Um, and I just remember once, she was not a small woman, she got out of her car very ladylike and then jumped into one of our, um, into one of the mounds and jumped up and down wildly and said, scorpion, <laughs> she just squashed it. <laughs> <laughs> What did it mean to have a, a princess for a boss? What did that do for your social life, Estelle? Oh, fabulous. We used to get invited to tent parties out in the desert. So they, were, they had these enormous tents and there were um, very Arabian nights experience. They were filled with Persian carpets and silver salvers with fruit in them and um, rose petals and the princesses used to waft incense under their hair and um, dance for us. It was magical. <laughs> I bet it was. What was your first Pompeii project? My very first one? Um, I, I went there uh, for the first time in 1986 and um, there was a, a multinational, multidisciplinary project uh, called Houses in Pompeii. So it was basically trying to preserve the houses in book form because preserving them on site is nearly impossible. One of the real tragedies is that this wonderful site um, it's fantastic to find, but as soon as you expose things, they start to deteriorate. So exposure to the elements, exposure to tourists, um, it has a really devastating effect on the buildings and the wall paintings and everything inside them. So um, what's left in situ usually suffers. And um, some German scholars had the idea that if you could record the building's histories and what was left of them in a book form, at least they'd be preserved in some form. And I went as um, part of that, but I had been asked if I was interested in studying the bones because no one had done a systematic study up until then. So No one in 200 years? There have been so. a few small studies. Um, one in particular in the 19th century where they were measuring skulls, which was very 19th century. They were very interested in looking for European races, which we now know don't exist. But um, that was what was popular at the time. It was first uh, re it was rediscovered around 200 years ago, wasn't it? Uh, uh, 17. Well, it was first found at the end of the 16th century uh, when they were digging a water channel for a small arms works um, in a nearby town. But they didn't recognise what it was. And even though they found, astonishingly, a sign saying Pompeii, they thought it was General Pompey. So it took a long time for them to realise what it was. <laughs> and, Real excavations, official excavations, started in 1748. 1748. So it's, 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 it's even older than that, the excavation. Mm -hmm. T tell me what, what happened in that process of excavation, beginning in that time, how people, if, if you like, have tried to project the views and values of their own societies onto the ruins of Pompeii and how, how destructive that's been for the, the truth of what happened. In terms of the skeletons, you mean? Yeah. Tell uh, me about the Roman guard, for instance, the heroic Roman guard that was eulogised as the man who never left his post. Yeah, there are a few skeletons that are alleged to have been found, especially in the 18th century, that um, a whole mythology developed around. And this particular one, there's actually no evidence that this individual was found at all. But the story was that there was um, an individual found in a sentry box outside the Herculaneum gate. That's the gate leading towards Herculaneum, the next town, um, with uh, a lance or a spear and the accoutrements of a soldier. 
And the story was that even though he knew death was imminent, he, he hadn't been dismissed from his post and he was going to stay there until death. As the lava slowly rose around him, he stood steadfast Absol to protect the Roman uh, Empire as it was by then, yes. Absolutely, mm. and, and there was actually a painting done in the 19th century, in, I think 1865 by Edward Pointer, and it was called Faithful Unto Death. And um, it, it was used in every English school textbook as a metaphor for loyalty to the empire. Unfortunately, well, two things. One, there's no evidence in the records anywhere that this skeleton was found. And two, outside the Herculaneum Gate, there are just tombs, like everyone was buried outside the town. And there is no sentry box. So had there been a body found there, and there almost certainly wasn't, it would have been a fugitive, you know, looking for shelter, trying to escape. Various emperors and, uh, and kings, heads of state, showed up to view the ruins of Pompeii. T tell me how the, the, <laughs> some of the bones were manipulated to, to impress some of these visiting dignitaries, Estelle. Well, um, there was a tradition of re-excavating sites in the presence of royalty. So... Um, there'd be some message that a dignitary was on his way, so they'd just cover up a house, put a few nice artefacts in so that they could say, here, king, whoever, have a little poke around here, and lo and behold, a little statue would appear, and they could take that home as a souvenir. And then just to sort of enhance the experience, they'd have somebody artistically draped over an amphora. And there is one story, I think, in 1768, King Joseph II from Austria came and was severely underwhelmed by what he saw. So obviously their, ana their anatomical reconstruction wasn't quite believable. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you went in to, dis to study the bones of, of Pompeii. Did the locals think you were a bit strange doing that? Oh, yes. <laughs> very, very odd indeed. So, And everyone, because Pompeii is a very small town, I lived there. And uh, everyone knew what I did. So they'd talk about me in the piazza as that mad woman who was locked up with the bones. <laughs> and um, whenever I went to the local cheese shop, it didn't matter how big the queue was, I was served first. And everyone would cross themselves as I left. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to that day now in 79 AD. I want, I'd love you to reconstruct what, what that day was like. And to begin with, We've talked about the kind of town it was. Were there all classes of people living in Pompeii? We know the rich had their holiday houses. Were, were there poor people there? Were there slaves living in Pompeii? There certainly were. Um, I'm sure there was a very good mix of individuals, though the work I've done, it's, it's interesting. It looks like there's, um, there's a huge amount of similarity between the skeletons and whether that relates to their growing in the environment in which they grew up or whether they were genetically closed populations. A bit hard to tell at the moment. Um, but their features, um, bone inheritance is extremely complicated. It's a mixture of genes and environment. So establishing what elements produce what results is very, very difficult indeed. But um, from historical sources, I'm sure there was a good mix of people in Pompeii. There's frescoes on the walls of some of the houses, portraits of some of the homeowners. What little details about their lives have been very telling for you? Little little things you've noticed as you've seen what they've been doing and, and how they were when they were caught? Um, well, I think the wonderful thing about archaeology, it doesn't tell us so much about the differences as the similarities. And the more you study, the more you find there isn't, especially when you're looking at a distance of only 2,000 years, we're not looking at very different people at all. 
No. Okay. Uh, uh, there's, there's a story that went around that um, the Vic- Victorian archaeologists uncovered uh, a brothel in Pompeii and were so appalled and shocked by its contents, they whisked them away and, and kept them in hiding. I don't know if they're still in hiding today. Is there any truth to that? Uh, there's certainly a brothel. Um, there are people who who interpret any naughty painting as being from a brothel, but I don't think they saw the world the same way we do. Um, and I'm sure that there, there aren't too many in Pompeii, but there's certainly one. And is it locked away? No, it's probably the most popular part of Pompeii. <laughs> so there, you can always find it. There's a huge queue of tourists snaking down the road trying to get in. There's, there's tons of obscene graffiti, which I, I don't suppose I can ask you to translate, but there's, there's plenty of obscene graffiti around Pompeii, isn't there, Estelle? There is, and it's the same as what you might find today. You know, the language has changed a little bit, but it's sort of in the order, you know, for a good time phone, whoever. So I think, you know, nothing's changed. <laughs> there were comments about several favoured prostitutes on the walls, I believe, as well with different names in in Latin which would translate as lovely bum or something like that. This is true as well? Yeah, there's a full range of very, very good um, graffiti and it's been very well studied. In fact, there's a um, a huge um, 900 page to volume work just on that. <laughs> One of the house famously has on its doorstep uh, in Latin, welcome money. What's that about? <laughs> oh, well, same as... Um, people today some people <laughs> <laughs> worship worship their wealth <laughs> were there any details were, were there any uh, warnings uh, omens that vesuvius might erupt on the lead up to that day in, in 79 ad there certainly were but whether people would have been able to recognize them is very doubtful so we know that there was a huge event in ad 69 there was a big earthquake and it caused an enormous amount of damage and that probably marked the beginning of a new cycle of activity for Mount Vesuvius. So it had been very active in the past, but it hadn't done anything in the years of occupation of um, the sites in that area. So we're looking at 800 years would of it occupation. Have, would it have smoked in the days leading up to the eruption? I don't know that it was smoking, but it might have had a bit of a bulge to it. So the way we interpret the eruption sequence is by looking at modern eruptions. So the one that's been used as the model mostly has been the um, 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens in Washington State, USA. And um, it wasn't as big as the AD 79 Vesuvius eruption, but probably a similar kind of event. But there were there was a lot of earthquake activity, probably in the last 17 years of occupation. Um, they did know that it was a volcano. Um, they, we have an, a few ancient writers, Pliny the Older never mentions it, but Strabo talks about burnt rock, and they certainly knew about volcanoes because you have um, Mount Etna, um, spewing lava regularly in Sicily and the Aeolian Islands. You've got Volcano and Stromboli, which was so regular it was called the Lighthouse of the Mediterranean. But it's very, very unlikely they knew, even knew that Vesuvius was a, a volcano. They just saw it was a, the pretty mountain out, outside of town. Um, well, like I said, I think Strabo um, mm. mentioned that it had been a volcano, but I don't think that anyone they thought it was no they, they, so, it was a seen as a benign feature on the landscape but really what was going on it was like a i don't know a bottle of fizzy drink with a cork shoved in it is that is that a, a crude but effective way of describing it um yeah not too bad <laughs> <laughs> so all this was happening under vesuvius the first explosion would it have been loud Uh, I'm sure it was loud, and there were a series of explosions, and they think that there were some maybe to the east first, 
We, we know a bit about the event from two letters by a gentleman known as Pliny the Younger. His uncle was uh, the head of the fleet of Mycenae, which was about 32 kilometres away from Mount Vesuvius. His nephew, Pliny the Younger, was invited to write two letters about the event, which he observed from, from like I said, about 32 kilometres away. And um, he mentioned that there are a lot of earthquakes just before, or that had been very common and that they, um, that they were experiencing a lot when the event happened. Podcast, broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. What exploded out of Pompeii? What would they have seen? Well, there would have been a huge eruption column that punched into the sky. So uh, it's been estimated at its greatest height, it would have been... uh, between 27 and 32 kilometres into the sky, so enormous with huge cloud associated with it, and pumice and ash raining down, depending on the direction of the wind, which on that day just happened to be going towards Pompeii. So the sky would have been black and there would have been little stones howling down. As I said, Pliny the Younger describes the event, and we know that it started earlier than they began to see it, because and that there was a series of explosions because Pliny the Elder, who set out to look at the eruption, um, received a message from a friend to be rescued, and obviously she couldn't have um, sent somebody out when the event was as they saw it. So that it happened earlier in different places. So there were a number of explosions. So there's this gigantic what black column of of ash and pumice going up right and gas shooting right up into the uh, highest points of the atmosphere by the sound of things. Yep. Force behind that. Uh, Just phenomenal, absolutely terrifying because it must have exploded. Well, if you see Mount Vesuvius today, you can see the crater from the 79 eruption and it's huge. (laughs) Did it it turn day into night? Um, Well, according to Pliny the Younger, it did. The sky went black and like I said, people were being hit by these little pumice stones. They put pillows on their heads. So moving. Did it eject large rocks as well? There are a few um, um, and some of them could have been burning, um, but there wouldn't have been a large number of them, but there certainly would have been some. At that point, I suppose people must have had to make a decision to stay, you know, stay or go. Yes, and um, what made what happened in people's heads, we have no idea. And I guess that was one of the interests that I had in looking at the skeletons. Was there any skewing 
as people had said in the past, without actually looking at the bones towards the old, the infirm, the very young. And for some reason, they thought women weren't running very fast. So my first job was just to establish what the makeup was of the sample of victims, because what I'm looking at, of course, are the victims, not the whole population. For those who cowered inside, what would have happened to the roof? Well, after a while, that ash and pumice building up um, would have caused the roofs to collapse, and they did. And a number of victims were found inside houses. People outside would have lived longer, but if they didn't leave before the second phase of the eruption, they really didn't have much hope. In order to get out during that first phase, what would they have done? Would they, would, would they be sort of fight, fighting their way through th clouds of, of ash and would they be breathing it in? And I wonder if people fell down without even getting too far out, outside their front door. Well, I think still. if you had a respiratory disorder, you wouldn't have been doing very well. So um, people who were young and fit and healthy but maybe would have been a bit advantaged, but hard to tell. But certainly people with serious illnesses or certainly respiratory ones wouldn't have been doing very well. Um, they could have escaped. There was there was a window of opportunity of quite a few hours, anything up to, and it's very hard to establish the time frame, but maybe up to 18 hours of um, possibility of escape. I, I'm just guessing, I suppose... People who are young and fit would have legged it out of there, but those with families and small children would have stayed to protect their families indoors. Yeah. Well, maybe, but we don't find very many small children, so it's... Why um, not? Why, why? Why? It's a bit difficult to um, be sure, but part of the problem I have is the way that the bones that I've been working on have been stored, and uh, which was in a very archaeologically accepted way now, but, you know... For the period, I guess it was amazing that they kept anything yeah. and little bones wouldn't have survived. <laughs> I suppose not. There were several surges after that which didn't affect Pompeii. And the fourth and the fifth one, as you write in your book, were majorly impacted upon Pompeii. What, what came out of, uh, out of uh, Vesuvius on those, those other surges? Okay. Well, this huge eruption column, if you can imagine, just forced into the stratosphere, it can't support itself, so eventually it has to collapse. And when it does, you get these series of hot gas avalanches, which we describe as pyroclastic density currents. Or, what, were, what were the gases? Um, well, they're volcanic gases. Sulfur and or carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide? Or? Um, well, there's certainly a lot of poisonous gases like that. Um, there's very little free oxygen. They, um, the pyroclastic flows, which mostly covered Herculaneum, but we get them everywhere in the region, they're dense avalanches of... Um, pumice ash and gas and they the direction they flow in depends on the underlying topography the pyroclastic surges they're turbulent um, avalanches they're much more dilute they're little particles of volcanic material suspended in hot air and gas and they can they can go anywhere radially from the crater and they travel at speeds of anywhere between 100 and 300 kilometres an hour. Whoa! They can have temperatures um, between 100 and 400 degrees Celsius. It's been argued considerably higher, in fact. So, um, so if you're standing, if you've somehow survived the first... Uh, what happens when this pyroclastic surge hits you? You just don't survive very long at all. How? What, what, was it, are you incinerated or are you poisoned or are you suffocated? Um, well, there's a lot of discussion about the details, but you do die fast and the heat does kill you quickly. So 
probably um, the victims wouldn't have survived at most more than a few minutes. Um, there seems to be a bit of variation about the amount of heat experienced across the site. Some people seem to have survived a little longer than others. You find them a little higher up, so they might have survived, but they were not going to God, survive it was the, very long. it was the apocalypse. No, I think for those people there, that's pr probably what they were thinking. And yeah. for them, it certainly was. And as you sort through the bones of Pompeii, do you, that thought must occur to you all the time, the, the absolute absolute primitive terror they must have felt yeah it was um thankfully a very quick death so i guess that's something to be grateful for but it must have been really awful was it that that's that surge that killed most of the people of pompeii i mean you your research you found many many uh, skeletons on top of the layers of ash and, and pumice which suggests that the they died after that that first surge the majority died um, when the fourth and fifth surges hit Pompeii, but there were quite a few people dead already from house collapse. Talking to an archaeologist from a couple of years ago, Dr. Stephen Burke, a wonderful man who works at Pella in Jordan, he he, he, he told me about how uh, digging down into these fascinating sites where you'd see the the body. I think it was a young man who he found who'd fallen under a wall that had toppled over because of an earthquake. Do you find bodies in those similar situations? Those situations where you can tell almost straight away how. How they were killed? Well, in, in Pompeii, it's a bit harder because most of... I'm not digging up their skeletons. They've been stored over a period of time. They're photographs, certainly, and you can see they died fairly quickly and you can see the positions of them um, in the casts. I mean, in Pompeii, we have this amazing form of preservation where people who were killed by the surge were covered with a very, very fine ash, it's the same chemical composition as cement, and it hardened over their bodies, anything organic, in fact. And over time, their soft tissue percolated out and left a hollow in the ash, which could be, then be cast. And we have... Oh, these are moulds yes, of yes. human beings. Yes, so... And have you filled in those moulds? Well, not me personally, but an archaeologist in the 1860s started the tradition, so... It was, um, we do, we have a number of them and we can see pretty much how they died. And certainly um, some of the positions tell us that they met very, very high temperatures at around the time of death. I have to ask you, Estelle, who were the fat, hairy women of Pompeii? <laughs> All right, this is the bane <laughs> of my life. One of, one of the things that um, I was looking at were what disorders people had. And I found it was difficult because the bones had become very mixed up um, because they'd been stored in ancient bathhouses. So I could only establish um, pathology from individual bones. Normally, you'd like to have a whole skeleton. But um, inside the skulls of a number of the individuals, and we're talking about nearly 12% of the large sample, about 360 individuals I studied, they presented with... Um, extra bony deposits so they're like benign tumors on the inside of the frontal bone of the skull and this can be fairly confidently diagnosed as a as a disorder it's an endocrine disorder that's almost always associated with older women postmenopausal women and there are a number of um, signs and symptoms that are associated with it they don't necessarily happen to every individual but they're more likely mm -hmm. and so they tend to um they can have um, um, obesity and non-insulin dependent diabetes uh, associated with it. They can um, develop male hair patterns, so grow a beard, and they can get headaches. And um, 
What was really exciting about it was that I found so many cases because establishing age at death from adults, from human bones, is very difficult. Um, while an individual's growing, the teeth are growing and developing and the bones are growing and developing, it's pretty easy to get a, an estimate of their age when they died. But all that finishes around the middle of the third decade of life, so by about 25 and um, after that, sadly, all we do is deteriorate and we don't degenerate at the same rate. So establishing age at death from adult skeletons is hard. So having an age-related disorder is really useful and finding it in such a high frequency tells us a few things. One is that um, my colleagues tend to kill off our ancestors at very early ages. They assume it's only with modern medicine that we live the kind of lifespan we have. But what this tells us is the frequency is comparable to a modern Western population. So therefore, um, they were probably living the same lifespan that we have. They, the difference would have been a higher infant mortality. But if you survived those first few critical years, your chances of living a long life were were quite reasonable. So that, so that says then we can then assume that it may well say something about the high level of nutrition and hygiene within uh, Pompeii at the time, for, for which you can attribute a, a longer lifespan, I wonder. Well, they, they weren't living in Rome. They were living, you know, a long way from a big city. They had a lot of space, so, and it was very, um, soil's really fertile, food's fabulous. I think they were living quite well. Um, so certainly they were doing well. The other thing it tells us is that if you've got the sort of frequency you'd expect to find in a modern Western population, that the sample I was looking at was normally distributed and probably random. So my statistical studies are probably um, quite acceptable. So, so your discovery of this disorder in uh, these women of Pompeii was reported in New Scientist uh, magazine. How was that then picked up by the international media? And They just went <laughs> wild. It, it, the sub-editor um, uh, of New Scientist um put in a heading that said the fat hairy ladies of Pompeii and the world was, went berserk. I, I was sent news clippings from all over the world. So um, I think the London Sun had a picture of Frankie Howard from up Pompeii with two nubile young maidens and the heading not true. And uh, uh, the um, Italian press had headings fat, ugly, hairy. Australian archaeologist Esther Laser says our women were really ugly and they had conferences about it and decided I couldn't be correct because Venus was the patron deity of Pompeii so therefore they were beautiful but worst of all I was sitting in my office and you know, I'd led a fairly sheltered life I guess and I got this phone call from a gentleman who um, identified himself as being from News of the World which I'd never heard of and um, he started asking me the normal questions said oh this is an endocrine disorder and I said correct and Women get male hair patterns and some male features, that's correct. And he said, do their clitorises get really big? And I went, excuse me? <laughs> and, and um, well, the truth is they, they do. And I, I just had this inkling of the career-destroying headlines, fat, hairy chicks with big clits. So I, um, <laughs> of Pompeii. Of Pompeii. So I tried to be very, very boring, and I said... Mm, it doesn't actually present on the skeletal record. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. But you've also spent plenty of, of your career working on Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Antarctica, this is a, about as different as you can possibly imagine from Pompeii. Tell me about your first trip there and what you were sent to, to do while you were there. Well, my first uh, trip was to work on 
um, the remains of um, Douglas Mawson's expedition of 1911 to 14, so quite recent. But our last, I guess, Antarctica was the last great colonisation. And so looking at um, especially Douglas Mawson, who was responsible for claiming 42% of Antarctic territory in Australia's name. So quite an important expedition. Um, this wasn't it, it was a later one where he did that, but he went down to study science and explore and map an unknown continent. So an amazing expedition. They built five huts. And we went. I went down with a private expedition. I've, I've been down to Antarctica seven times now, five times to do um, archaeological work. What's the boat trip like? It's awful, isn't it? I mean, it's Pretty rough. <laughs> the first time I went down on a very small, um, it, it was a trawler that had been converted into a sailing ship. So it was 21 metres long. So that's like 60 feet, I think. And um, there were 12 of us on board and we did the we did the sailing ourselves and I'd never been outside the heads before so I knew nothing of big seas or seasickness and um, it was pretty exciting. I did find myself wakened by my my watch captain one morning at one being told you're on iceberg watch and being lashed to the mast. <laughs> There was Lashed a, to the mark. Truly, there was Force 10 Gale, and it was very much like those B-movies with huge waves <laughs> bucketing over me and couldn't see a thing. Thought that we were going to die because I couldn't see anything. There were three icebergs on the radar, but um, there were just enormous waves. So there's nothing in the way of land between us, you know, Hobart and the Antarctic continent, so you, the waves you, get enormous. Yes, <laughs> terrifyingly so. You didn't think as you were lashed to the mast being sort of washed over by frozen seas that, you know, I could be having a focaccia in Pompeii right now, did you? <laughs> you didn't think that? Oh, uh, no. I thought no. I, I could be doing a boring office job. You and did, it... <laughs> yes. Tell me, though, about approaching Antarctica and, and, you know, I've known people who've gone there. I haven't been there myself, but about the still brilliance weirdness magic of that place it is it's it's like another world and for a person who grew up in sydney and had barely seen snow before it was just magic so as you go down the sea freezes over it first of all it looks kind of greasy and then you get pancake ice and then it becomes very still and there are icebergs and whales and seals and penguins and seabirds and it's pretty magic. Do There's, you hear the ice cracking occasionally? You do and you see it um, sometimes big chunks of ice fall off either ice cliffs or icebergs and they make an enormous noise and a huge splash and it's just astonishing environment. How did you get used to the cold? Oh you don't but we had very good clothes and if you go down with the Australian Antarctic Division they provide you with your clothing so this is on subsequent trips the first trip was a private expedition but subsequently I've traveled down with the division and they had a wonderful man in the stores he'd just get you to stand up and he'd look at you and go out and get masses of clothes what you wear against your skin you keep and the rest of it gets recycled between expeditioners so I ended up with a freezer suit which is like a kind of walk-in doona and it had Kev written on the outside and short legs on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your job once you got there? Um, well, doing archaeology. So um, I'm just um, concentrating all my experiences together. But uh, the archaeology is very, very different, of course, to Pompeii. So we're looking at mapping the site. The expedition left artefacts scattered across the whole of um, Cape Denison and um, 
inside the hut. So mapping, documenting, looking at uh, how to manage the site. And once you got to the hut, had it been buried under snow or was it still uh, above, well above ground? Uh, it depends on the time of the year. It, it emerges in the summertime, but it's buried in the winter. Um, inside the hut has had a lot of ice and snow in it and we experimented with new uh, techniques for excavation including taking ice cores so I'm publishing that with a friend it's the first glaciology inside a shed I'm told and uh, also using chainsaws as digging tools. And to go inside that hut were there like old tins of food in there that kind of thing? There are it's a very small space and uh, in the first year of occupation there were 18 men all squashed together with all their clothes and personal effects and they very very thoughtfully put their names on their bunks so you could see who was getting the best real estate so um the expedition photographer frank hurley was right near the stove which was very good and he had a little tiny dark room which was like a broom closet and they kept their personal effects in these tiny spaces so i think madigan had a picture of roses in his bunk which i think is really lovely because you get this picture of remote heroes and here they are just people missing flowers and we did find a tiny square of tobacco which still smelled like tobacco and um oh just all the tiny effects somebody um eric webb left his badge from his university college uh, at the University of Canterbury and Christchurch in New Zealand. Um, Douglas Mawson had the most eclectic collection of pictures above his bunk. So really, it's it's really lovely. You get a sense of the people who are occupying that space. How about the remoteness too, about being far away from the world? No, not easy to get email there. They did use the first radio in Antarctica, but it wasn't altogether successful. Um, they were very remote, and I think they put these little touches there to bring home back to them. What sort of things appear and disappear as the landscape changes seasonally? Well, it's amazing. You get the loss of snow, the ablation varies, not just um, seasonally, um, each year as well. So going back there Every year we find completely different things and it's astonishing. Sometimes they're quite large. So the last time I was there working, which was 2002, we found um, right near the hut, just to the west, uh, an enormous elephant seal which they'd killed for food, I assume, and fuel during the winter months. What Mawson had killed? Oh, their party killed seals, yes. They were like squirrels. Any seal that hauled up <laughs> onto the shore... Um, was dispatched and um, was left there because they everything they needed. <laughs> it hadn't completely decomposed. Uh, decomposed. No, no, there was skin and um, sometimes a bit of fur left. I mean, the wind is very strong. There's one seal that um, we found where the wind had actually completely blown the skin off and it was right next to it. It is the windiest coastal site on the planet. So does that blow your mind? Standing over a half-cut-up seal that Douglas Mawson used for food? Uh, yeah, well, food for their dogs and um, fuel. And they did um, sometimes eat the seals. The younger ones apparently tasted better. I think all the men, they had to be very practical. They, they just had to store things for the winter. When you finish a trip to Antarctica, do you, do you wait a while before going back to Pompeii? Do you need to, how does that transition process go for you? Uh, sometimes well, it just depends on how the seasons work. Sometimes it's been very rapid. I think the first time I went to Pompeii, I went straight back down to Antarctica. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting set of contrasts, I guess. 
when you see the uh, the sight of a skeleton there, sort of, I don't know, lying there on the ground, what do you think? Do you, does your mind go to that moment of, of death for that person? Do you try and put yourself in the mind of the person you've found? Um, I guess I, I'm really interested to know what they're going to tell me. Um, I think you can't, you have to be a little detached from your work to be able to do it, but certainly it's it must have been really awful for them just um knowing that death was imminent i think there must have been a point where they realized they weren't going to escape and certainly i respect them as human beings and i'm fascinated by the stories that they tell us about the lives of people who were living on this planet just about two thousand years ago is your life as exciting as you'd hoped it would be as a girl Estelle, given that you have fulfilled your dream of going to Pompeii and Antarctica and, and doing valuable archaeological work. Yeah, I've been very, very fortunate. I think I've been extremely privileged. Gee, it's been great to meet you today, Estelle. Thank you so much for joining me in conversation today and, and telling us all about your absolutely fascinating work. Together with colleagues from the University of Sydney and around the world, Dr Estelle Laser has been running a huge project called the Pompeii Cast Project for almost 10 years now. By taking x-rays and CT scans of those casts, Estelle is continuing to unlock the mysteries of those victims of Vesuvius. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.